0: Uh, it's awesome to have Pastor Brad back here this morning. Remember, we're one church, two locations. And uh, Pastor Jonathan and Pastor Eric are over this morning at the Kingston campus. Eric is uh, doing an interview talking about our global work. And uh, Pastor Jonathan's leading the Lord's Supper. So it's really cool to have Pastor Brad back here today. That's always fun. Acts chapter 16, verse 11 to 40. If you would pray with me, then we're going to get after it. Father, in the name of Jesus, for your glory and our joy, we pray against the effects of the evil one who would come with lies and distractions to keep us from the Word, from the Spirit, from each other. We pray, God, that you would overcome those things today. We pray now that you would clear the air of our thinking, cause us to see and savor more of Jesus today. Grow us in our unity and love for each other and the outworking of that, which is the advancement of your kingdom for your glory and our joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 16, verse 11 through 40. The planting of the church at Philippi. The planting of the church at Philippi. We talk about planting churches. We'll send out a planter for North Cartersville in March. Um, We've got a new campus over at the Kingston facility. We are training currently six new pastors and church planters. And we talk about church planting. We were, 14 years ago, a church plant. No longer. Our roots are firmly established. But really, when it comes to... Us planting churches, that's really not quite right. You see, we plant churches in that we evaluate gifting. If you want to explore that and you meet the character qualifications pastorally and by the way, biblically... Biblically, it isn't pastors who plant churches. It's apostolically gifted men and women. I know that freaks some of us Baptist people out, but that's what we are, Southern Baptist, Reformed, Calvinistic, Southern Baptist, missions-loving, God's glory, globally Baptist. That's what we are. But we are first and foremost, before anything else, we're Bible-believing Christians. And if we read Acts carefully, and which is what we are doing and studying through it, it's apostolically gifted people that plant churches, not pastors. You look in the text, and pastors, elders are appointed after the church is planted. It's how it works. Okay. Um, there are kinds of reasons why we do it opposite. It's not the point of this talk. Just want you to be aware that Bible study always go to the text with a clear mind. Clear your palate of anything past handed down to you that's not biblical. Let the text speak. Make sense? Always let the text speak. We believe it's the inerrant, infallible Word of God, right? And if it is, then it's not wrong. If it's not wrong, it won't lead us wrong. Let it speak. Do what it says. All will be well. Make sense? So when we plant churches, we do evaluate gifting, desire, and those types of things. And we engage in a process and a plan. And there is an execution phase. But in reality, Jesus is the one who said he would build his church. So whatever we do in church planting is really our realizing what Jesus is doing as we seek to obey Him. It's not our initiative. It is us joining Jesus in the work He said He would do. You see, as we make disciples through going, baptizing, teaching, as Jesus taught us to do in the Great Commission, Jesus is building His church. We're simply, to use Jesus' language, releasing on earth what He has already released and heaven this doesn't defy good processes the truth is what makes good processes and plans succeed this truth that jesus is building his church is what makes good plans and good processes succeed one realization that i had this week in studying this passage and it's one i fear that i've perhaps not emphasized enough and shouldn't have maybe downplayed it as much as I have and maybe I haven't intentionally downplayed it. Maybe it's because I'm just fearful of too much repetition that people are going. Oh, he keeps saying the same thing over and over again. Oh, dear God, when will he stop? Yeah. When you get it, thank you. And so I fear that I've downplayed it more than I should have. Or not made as much of it as I should have. And that is that God is the one leading the advance of the gospel in every way. Our text today is going to bear this out. And so I'd like to lead into our study of Acts 16, 11 to 40 with a little bit of a, a lengthy quote from one of my favorite books of all time. Pastors and church planners in training right now are reading this book called Let the Nations Be Glad, The Supremacy of God and Missions. If you don't have that book, I suggest you go get it and read it. Um... But in response to Albert Einstein's skeptical approach to the church and preachers in particular, Charles Meisner commented that Einstein had witnessed the amazingness of the universe and its grandeur and the ones claiming to speak on behalf of that God seemingly lacked any real passion for, fear of, and awe of the God of the Bible. So Piper, in the chapter entitled, The Supremacy of God in Missions Through Worship, responds to Meisner by talking about how we can distract from the grandeur and majesty of God when we get caught up in trying to serve Him rather than marvel at Him. Losing awe by getting caught up serving God rather than worshiping Him is a deadly trap. We obey and join him in his work. We don't add to that work something he can't bring. Now, I know in our hearts when we talk about serving the Lord, we we really don't believe we're adding something to Jesus' effort. I know we don't mean that. But it's easy for folks who aren't churched To hear us say, when we say those kinds of things, that somehow we're doing something Jesus can't do. And that's not what we mean, I know. I think there are some folks in other locales and maybe other tribes who really think they're doing things Jesus can't do. When we get caught up thinking about serving God rather than standing in awe of Him, we can get caught into this passionless, cold Pursuit of God that is simply based on information alone. And somehow, if we have enough information about God, and we've read Grudem's Systematic Theology, or we've taken a course, we have now arrived because we know more, but our worship is cold. Or I don't sing because that's not my style. You see, we're not co-equal work partners with Jesus. Jesus. That's, that's what I mean, and that's what Piper means when he says getting caught up in serving God rather than worshiping God. So listen to this remedy. Here's the lengthy quote, okay, leading into our study. Because, again, I want you to see in Acts sixteen eleven to 40, that Jesus is the one planting churches, not us. The Kingston campus is Jesus' work, not ours. Plants in Cartersville are Jesus' work, not ours. We're simply realizing what He has released in the heavenlies and put in front of us to grab. That make sense? So listen to to Piper's Remedy. Scientists know that light travels at the speed of 5.8 trillion miles a year. They also know that the galaxy of which our solar system is a part is about 100,000 light years in diameter. You feel small yet? About a... 587,000 trillion miles. It is one of about a million such galaxies in the optical range of our most powerful telescopes. It has been estimated that our galaxy that in our galaxy there are more than 200 billion stars. The sun is one of them, a modest star burning at about 6 1,000 degrees centigrade on the surface and traveling in orbit at about 135 miles per second, which means it will take about 250 million years to complete a revolution around the galaxy. Scientists know these things and are awed by them. And they say, if there is a personal God, as the Christians say, who spoke this universe into being, then there is a certain respect and reverence and wonder and dread that would have to come through when we talk about Him and when we worship Him. We who believe the Bible know this even better than the scientists because we've heard something even more amazing. Isaiah 40, 25 and 26. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like Him? Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Every one of the billions of stars in the universe is there by God's specific appointment. He knows their number. And most astonishing of all, he knows them by name. They do his bidding As his personal agents. And when we feel the weight of this grandeur in the heavens. We have only touched the hem of his garment. Job 26.14. Behold these are but the outskirts of his ways. (laughs) And how small a whisper do we hear of him. This is why we cry in Psalms 57.5. Be exalted O God above the heavens. God is the absolute reality that everyone in the universe must come to terms with. Everything depends utterly on His will. All other realities compare to Him like a raindrop compares to the ocean or like an anthill compares to Mount Everest. To ignore him or belittle him is unintelligible and suicidal folly. And this is underlined and italicized. We're following along on the blog. How shall one ever be the emissary of this great God who has not trembled before him with joyful wonder? How shall you be an ambassador of that God if you don't tremble before him in joyful wonder? If all you know of him is what you've read in a book... And that, that's not bad. That's, don't hear me calling that evil. But if, if your discipleship is merely, I read this and that's awesome, I know it, but there's no joyful trembling that the God of the universe, then how shall you ever be his ambassador? Well, right? So I hope what we take away from the text today is not another strategy lesson on how to plant churches or how awesome planting churches is and how awesome missions is. Planned Church is awesome. The Great Commission is awesome. We do those things, but I hope what you take away is awe and wonder at the God who knows every star by name, calls them to do His bidding, and loves us still, and directs our steps in triumphal procession for His glory and our joy. So, with that in mind, let's take a look at Acts sixteen eleven to forty. What do we see? What does it mean? We'll break this down into several sections. The first section we 'll look at is verse eleven through twelve. What do we see? What does it mean, and then we 'll ask what to do with it in application. Verse eleven to twelve so setting self from Troas, we made a direct voyage to now by the way, I struggle like i don 't want to be mr like Greek guy, smart guy. I try not to play that card too often. But Samothrace, it looks like, is Samothraki, but it always feels weird saying it that way because it feels like, hey, people think you're ignorant and don't know how to pronounce things, or you're just trying to be, like, smart guy. So, we're going to say Samothrace, and if you think I'm ignorant, that's fine. It's Samothraki, but it sounds weird. I'm sorry. So, I feel weird saying that, so I have to explain myself. So, pardon my feeling a little, whatever, I'm feeling some kind of way about it. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace. And the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia, and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. What do we see? What does it mean? Jesus, who is king of all, the creator of the universe, right? Who made these billions of stars in the galaxies who hurled through the universe, is the one who leads the work. The one who created this universe and knows every star by name, is leading his ambassadors. What's interesting here is this same voyage, if you flip over to chapter 20, verse 6, this... Chapter 20, verse 5 and 6, because chapter 5 and 6 is one sentence. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. We sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas where we stayed seven days. This same voyage, did you just notice? It took them five days to make in chapter 20, verse 5 and 6. Here in chapter 16, 11, and 12, it takes them how many days? Two days. The reason is because this language in the text, we made a direct voyage as one Greek word. And it literally is a nautical term, which means to sail straight and quickly. Why do you think that is? You want to know why? Because last week, or the week before, when we studied Acts 16, 1 through what? 10, or actually 15, 36 through 16, 10. We discovered that Jesus was preventing Paul and the team from getting into certain parts of Asia. Jesus was shutting off ministry. He was stopping them. And then in the night, Jesus gives Paul a dream and a vision, and he sees a man over in Macedonia saying, Hey, come help us. And he discerned rightly that Jesus was calling them over there to preach. So they get on a ship, and guess what happens? The wind is at their back. They make a five-day trip in two days. Why? Because Jesus, who is king of all, leads the work. Jesus had clearly opened a door for them to go into now Europe... And even provided a friendly wind to get them there. What do we do with this reality? Well, number one, how do we apply this? When God opens doors, He makes ways and means. When God opens doors, He makes ways and means. You don't have to push. You don't have to struggle to make things happen. Our job is to simply obey. Never did Jesus tell us to go knock down walls. Never did Jesus tell us to go force our way into places. Jesus told us to disciple the nations. And what we discover in the book of Acts is as we seek to obey him, he, the one who knows every star by name, calls him out, causes our son to travel through the solar system at 135 what, miles per second. Right. He is the one who opens doors. Isn't that awesome? So you think if Jesus can be in control of gravity and the speed of stars and the speed of sound and the speed of light, think He can open ministry doors for you? I don't know. I'm not sure. Absolutely. So when Jesus opens doors, He makes ways and means. You don't have to push. You simply have to obey. So look for divine ways and means. Refuse... To push george Mueller used to say if your faith will ever increase you must decide beforehand to never deliver yourself boy that's not what we're taught is it we're taught to be self-sufficient self-deliverers who do our thing we do it our way i'm the captain of my ship and the master of my soul right that that's not the record we find in the biblical text Jesus is the one who opens doors and He makes ways and means. Second thing we can do with these two little verses here is be in awe of how He leads us. Be in awe. Be in awe. Part of your daily job as a follower of Jesus Christ is to worship Him. Sunday morning worship is, is not the only time you should worship. I mean, find you a good CD or a good download in iTunes. CD's even outdated now. Right? or Spotify, or Amazon Music. Do something. Find you a good CD. Read your Bible and let the music play and sing to Jesus. Worship Him privately because what you do in private will manifest itself publicly. Be in awe of how He leads you. Keep a journal. Take record of how He leads you. Write your prayers down and when He answers them, go back and write underneath where you prayed it how He answered it and the date He did it on. So that when you look back over that journal five years from now and you're in the dumps and you wonder, has Jesus abandoned me? Wow! On March the 2nd, 2014, I prayed. Six months later, He answered. Why? Because He's faithful. You need to know that because the enemy will play you like a fiddle. Be in awe and worship Him. Take note of those things and then stop and worship and give thanks in public. One of the great things for Christians to do is to give Jesus glory in public. Honor Him in public with the words you speak, the attitude in which you live, and speak His name openly and publicly. Give Him praise publicly. Well, second thing I want us to note here also in verse 11 and 12. I promise we'll make, we'll make headway through the text. Jesus takes the gospel of the kingdom to a new continent. Philippians 16, or I'm sorry, Acts 16... 11 to 12, Jesus takes the gospel of the kingdom to a new continent, to the city of Philippi. The gospel breaks into a completely new territory, and it's going to set the stage. I want you to catch this. Remember, Paul and the team were trying to get into Mysia and Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to go. You remember that? And then in the night, the vision: come over here, help us. I want you to understand, that's going from Asia to Europe. You know that? That that's This is the gospel now jumping over the sea to a new continent. And this move, right? This move, I want you to catch this. I want the grandeur and the awesomeness of this to fall on you. This move will set the stage for the next 2,000 years of history that will shape Western civilization. That's big. It's easy to read that and okay, they move on to Philippi. And we read right on and don't stop and realize you're here today because of that. Your civilization that has been shaped by the ethics of Christianity and the intentionality of advancing comes from the Great Commission. And because Jesus shut Paul off from staying in Asia and sent him to Europe, you're here today. And so Jesus here is breaking into a completely new territory that's going to set the stage for the next 2,000 years, which is why we look for His ways and means, not our own. Paul's scope was stay in Asia. while wow, Galatia is a cool region, and Jesus is going, Nahas, Europe. Oh yeah, and by the way, this new world you don't know about just yet. By the way, the Irish got there for it. Columbus, just so you know. Brendan the Navigator. You need to read your history. This move is going to shape everything. Jesus sent them to the region of Macedonia. And the gospel of the kingdom is going to invade Europe. And what's interesting there is that once Jesus led them to that place, they did something cool. They went to a leading city called Philippi. It's a Roman colony means, it being a Roman colony, means that the emperor has placed them there on purpose strategically. The emperor would create colonies all over the empire and relocate either retired soldiers, retired politicians, who lived in the pro-Roman way of things to these cities in order to facilitate and grow the empire. So quite literally, Philippi was a, as we say here, a... What? Leading city in the district of Macedonia. Jesus led them here, and now they begin to look with eyes of strategy where they may go to have the most effect. I want you to note this point. Divinely opened doors will always precede strategy. We have a tendency to think strategically before we think, Jesus, what are you doing? Often we think strategically, then we ask Jesus, what are you doing? Then we ask Him to bless our way. Not so here Jesus led them to where he wanted them. And when they landed, they go, okay, this is a pretty strategic place. A lot of lost people, a lot of de church people. <laughs> they didn't say de <laughs> That's de church people. A lot of people need to, need to walk into the gospel. Let's go there. Divinely open doors precedes strategy. What do we do with this? Well, look for open doors of service before devising strategic ways to open doors yourself. You ever notice that the best ministry happens on what we think are accidental, just kind of weird things that happen? They're not accidental. They're the creator of stars going, moving the piece. Next week when we study the life of C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis referred to God in his process of like playing chess, that God was making his moves and cornering him in before checkmate happened. That's great imagery. The master of the universe is moving the pieces on the map to achieve his good purposes. So always. Always, always, always look for open doors of service. Be patient. Pray for direction. You know, one of the things we don't do at Three Rivers Church is we don't do ministries. Like like lots of like programs. Like we don't have people coming. How can I get involved? What kind of ministry? Uh, we don't have one right because we talk about domain engagement why because if we create little ministries for a few people to serve in that puts some people hierarchical up and you kind of you know they kind of do their thing everybody claps for them and we say everybody's a minister of the gospel every disciple church planner, so we call it, we call it domain engagement right god's created you to be in a certain domain of society and there you live and you work and you make disciples in that domain right so what what are our programs domain engagement Where's God put you? Go make disciples, plant churches. We'll help you. Right? Now, whoa! I didn't want to get that deep. Well, that you said you want to follow Jesus. That's what Jesus is doing. So right, right. So, so we talk about. So, all that to say this. Be patient. Pray for direction. Jesus opens doors. When he opens them, walk through them. And When he opens doors, walk through them, then look strategically at how to best use your time and maximize your work. Strategy isn't first, but it is important. I'll give me an example. Many of you know this. We don't talk about this in a membership class, but Three Rivers Church was originally supposed to be in a little location called Hamilton Crossing in Cartersville. Right? Just outside of Cartersville. If you go Highway 293 and go into Kingston, there's a little place called Hamilton Crossing. We came out from, this is my home, I'm from here, but it was out in Texas, seminary. And uh, God was working on us to plant this church. So Emmett and I came out and we're doing some scouting, working with the director of missions at the Bartow Baptist Association. And very long story short, he abandoned us. Didn't want to be part of the work. They have a new DOM now who likes church planting. But hey, so God shut off Cartersville. God opened the doors for Rome. Now you know what's fun. Let I me mean, you blow your mind. Ready? We got one church planner about to plant a church in North Cartersville, and God's raised up another one who lives at Hamilton Crossing. His name Jeff Williams, and his precious wife Lindsay, who's going through pastor church planner training, and loves and would love to have a church at Hamilton Crossing. You can't make that stuff up, y'all. You cannot make that stuff up. Jesus opens doors. And when he does, start thinking strategically about how to best engage. But look for divinely opened doors. Secondly, think strategy. And then watch Jesus move the chess pieces. I'm telling you, that's the kind of cool stuff that makes me want to go knock on hell's doors with a water gun and squirt somebody. Right? That's good stuff. Right? Jesus. Jesus moves in such a way. Well... Verse 13 to 15 in in Acts 16. Jesus even, the one who moves the stars and calls them out by name, Jesus leads the evangelism and he makes it effective. Look at verse 13 to 15. And on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who had heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me faithful, to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay, and she prevailed upon us. Jesus is even leading the evangelism that makes, and makes it all effective. What happens here is they have the open doors, they look for the strategic location now, and then they go to the place where they suppose there will be some semi-religious people. In their context, they would place a synagogue close to a tributary. And you had to have at least 10 men to have a synagogue. Well, it's clear they don't have at least 10 men here to have a synagogue. So a bunch of ladies have gone to a place where there might be a synagogue, but there isn't one. And so they are there to pray. So the team begins to target an area where some religiously motivated people would gather. And what do they do? They speak to them. I want you to know there's nothing novel here. Like, there's nothing like, oh, amazing. They like, okay, where do religious people hang out? Okay, by the river. Religious people. And they talk to them. Hey, my name's Paul. What's yours? Lydia. Okay. Uh, I got something. I mean, I'm gonna make fun of it, but it's, it's, it's similar. Like, if you've done any missions or evangelism, that's kinda what you gotta do. You gotta meet somebody and say, hey, how are you? Or, salam alaikum, alaikum as salam. Hey, very good. And you start talking about Jesus. Like, this isn't rocket science. I know we just talked about stars hurtling through space and everything, but we didn't do any of the math, okay? This isn't rocket science. It's, where do people hang out? Let's go where they are. And let's talk to them. And what happens? The Lord, the Lord, not Paul, not the team. The Lord opens Lydia's heart to pay attention. Now, what's fun is here in verse fourteen, when it says, uh, "One who heard us." Not. No. What's interesting in verse thirteen? It's clear that they're speaking to the whole group, because verse fourteen now narrows down onto the one who who heard you've got to keep in mind here when it says heard, it's not like the others didn't hear. It's heard in the active sense of she heard beyond physical hearing. Like she heard. She got it. One who heard was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. Now, what's going to happen later at the city of Thyatira? You think about the book of Revelation? Come on, y'all. There's going to be a church there. There's going to be a church there. Why? Because Jesus wants one. Right? And and here's a key, because she's from this place. Her name, we don't have time to talk about Lydia's name, but her name is connected to the city, which is her hometown. She's in Philippi, doing business for whatever reason. And later on, there's going to be a church at Thyatira. And chances are, she's right in the middle of it. Don't know that, but there's going to be a church there. Not there now, going to be. Right? The Lord opened her heart to pay attention this is awesome. This little word, this little phrase, open her heart, literally means to make the place of their desire to pay attention. That's the magic of the gospel. If you'll pardon my use of the language. The gospel's powerful. And it calls forth dead people to life. It's what it does. He opened the location in her soul... That is the seed of desire and emotions. He opened it up to make it pliable to this gospel message. And you notice it was the Lord's work. What precipitated it? Preaching Jesus. This is her salvation. And what's interesting here, we find out in verse 15 that the whole group is saved. This is something that's weird for us, particularly in Western civilization. We are so individual focused, we don't know how to think in community. In the Bible, when somebody gets saved who's a leader of the group, the whole group follows suit because, well, they know what's up. And I follow them, do what they do because they do what's right. And it, it counts. Like, it's not irrelevant. It counts. That happens today in the places where we work globally. Which is why you can't, which is why evangelism among the people that we work with is dangerous if you isolate individuals. And you don't hide in the dark shadows and isolate individuals, you speak to the whole group. You might you might target the person who is the leader, but 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 it affects everybody. It's called honor and shame. It's a whole different code. We don't even know how to think honor and shame. We think right, wrong, which is good. But there's also in the Bible honor, shame. Like honor your father and your mother, right? You've read that and you're like, I don't know what that means. It's because we don't think honor shame. So when, when the head of the group makes a decision, the rest of the group's like, mm-hmm. And it counts. Jesus counts it. Because what happens? whole stinking group gets saved. Listen, verse 15. And after she was baptized and her household as well, her body got saved. The Lord opens Lydia's heart. That's a key to everybody else. Jesus saves them and they baptize them. Lydia and her group is baptized. They go public with their faith instantly. That's what baptism is. It's public proclamation and I'm following Jesus. And instantly begins Christian fellowship and community. How do we know this? Because Lydia prevailed upon them saying, You've got to come to my house. you come coming to my house. Jesus said, I'm now in the group. Come to my house. What do we do with this? What are we supposed to do? How do we apply this? A few things here. Well, seven. Try to be fast because we've got a few more points. Be constantly on mission as led by the Spirit. Looking for people who have leanings, who need to hear and be offered an opportunity to repent and believe. Listen. Your divinely appointed opportunity is in front of you because you're going to go to it in the morning when you clock in. Right? So start looking for people leaning. Like they're kind of moving in that direction. Be this is this is vital here. This is Hudson Taylor's spiritual secret. If you've never read Hudson Taylor's biography, anybody read Hudson Taylor? You know who Hudson Taylor is? Inland China Mission, like two of you. You can go read that biography, right? Inland China, still, by the way, the Inland China Mission is not the Inland China Mission today, but still in operation. What he started is still functioning there today. That's stinking cool. Because the kingdom, right? This is Hudson Taylor's spiritual secret. He wrote a book about it. I'm going to save you having to read the book. You ready? Be constantly the Lord's instrument every moment. Be constantly the Lord's instrument every moment. The key, Hudson Taylor said, when he discovered this secret, the ministry took off. And that was every moment of every day, be the Lord's instrument. In other words, I don't know if you've realized, but that takes some effort. That means when you open up iCal, and you make your little appointments, you write yourself a reminder, it says, be the Lord's in this appointment. Your agenda, not mine. So that when you walk into Swift and Fence, or you you go to wherever you go, and you have appointments, you go to Starbucks, walk in, going, Jesus, open my ears to hear, and show me what you want right now. Because if He runs the stars and knows them by name, you think He's ignorant of you? You think He's ignorant of the ministry He's given? You think He doesn't know where you are? He knows. And so you need to tap into that. Jesus, not only do you know now, your GPS is always on, but you know what's going to happen ten minutes from now, so help me right now to hear you and do what you want right now. And you know what? It will crazy open the world for you. Crazy open the world to you. So be constantly, the Lord's, in every moment. That's what they are here and they walk up, a bunch of ladies. Now, culturally, it's probably not the best idea for Paul and his merry band of dudes to be talking to a bunch of ladies by a river. That's culturally a little bit inappropriate, but the kingdom trumps it here. And so, he's gotta be in tune. Lord, what? Well, I'm supposed to do this? And the Lord led them there, so what they do? They speak, so be constantly the Lord's, be willing to listen to Him and obey Him. Trust the Holy Spirit to do the regenerating work. You can't make anybody believe. Paul just preached. The team preached. He opened the heart of Lydia. Chances are they didn't know who the leader was until Jesus opened her heart and saved her. We can assume that from the text fairly clearly. You've got to learn to recognize when the Lord opens somebody's heart. So How in the world am I supposed to do that? Well, Jesus usually works in people through good questions. How do I? What am I supposed to? What does this look like? Why do you believe? Listen for good questions. Another way you can tell when Jesus is at work in somebody is there's this. And by the way, I don't know if you've noticed. This is spiritually discerned kind of stuff. If you're not walking with the Lord, this stuff is hitting your head and bouncing off. Oh, no. Oh, no. Right? But if you're walking with the Lord and you're paying attention, you can sense. You should be able to discern the spiritual air in the moment. Right? Right? Girls are real good at this. You walk in a room, y'all. What's wrong? You can tell relationships broke. You can point out who they are. And us men, like, I don't know. I just need some food. What time's the game? Right. And the ladies are going, something's wrong. And we're like, we're totally oblivious. Right? So be attuned. It's called discernment. Holy Spirit gives it. He gives it to men, gives it to women too. Ladies are naturally good at it. Us men are not. But Holy Spirit can help us. So walk in and pay attention. And if there's somebody that God's working in their heart, they're asking good questions. Be in tune to life. Because they. the Bible tells us they were dead in their transgressions and sins. But if Jesus is awakening them to life, you need to know that. Don't you think? Yeah. How are you going to know that? Pay attention. The light comes on in the eyes. There's a different oomph. It's a spiritually discerned thing. They may also ask, what do I need to do? If you notice in the book of Acts, people ask that question: what do I need to do to be saved? How'd they know to ask that? They didn't. Jesus did. So He made them ask it. And He made them ask it to somebody who could help them. Right? Because He runs the stars. right? And so... Be in tune and help people go public with their faith immediately. Discipleship, this is key, y'all. This is awesome. Notice Lydia didn't have to take Christianity 101, 102, and 103 before she started practicing the faith, did she? In the moment, come to my house. I have a small group at my house. Why? Because discipleship isn't linear. Go to these studies and then when you finish and know all this stuff, you're a Christian. Discipleship is learning to follow Jesus now. Doctrine happens. It's important. It's in the manual. But it happens as we follow Jesus. So what does she instantly do? She hosts a small group at her house. Hospitality happened. She prevailed on them. That means she was very insistent. No, I know you don't know me, but you come to my house. No, 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 we're good. No, 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 no Paul. No, you don't get it. I'm a new creation now. You are coming to my house. So her discipleship began and they assisted her and they went with her. Right? So help them start walking with Jesus instantly. Be in community. Be ready to fold new disciples into community. Community was one of the first acts Lydia did as a follower of Jesus. Like that, that is a sermon in and of itself. It's Trinitarian reality. Women, I'm going to open a can of worms here and I'm going to just let you handle it, Okay? The Bible's clear that the role of pastor, elder, overseer is a male position only. The Bible's also clear that some of the best starters and hosters of church plant plants happen to be women. Lydia. I know it's weird for us because we think planting churches with pastors. That's not how it happens in the Bible it's not how it happens it's not how it happens not how it happens just how, it how we've adapted but it's not necessarily best practice cuz i guarantee you, there's some of you women sitting here who know how to organize a stew out of a paper bag and some of us men just just that's where we put our candy right and we don't we're just kind of floating along we're 30,000 foot vision people and you know how to get stuff done you would be great on a church planning team and Jesus can raise up pastors out of that crew. He did it all through the Bible. Titus, this is why I appointed you to go and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Why would you appoint elders? Because there were churches planted there and they needed pastors. And where did the pastors come from? Not outside, from within. Which is why we do what we do organically. There's some of you men sitting here. If you meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3, 1-7, to and God's put the desire in you to shepherd God's people, die first, target on your back, be criticized, hated, Put down, little, no pay. Come on. We'll train you up. Right? Right? So, you're here. Church planting missional DNA is from within the local church. It's all right here because it's you. Question is, will you engage your domain? So women, that's you too. Great ministry leaders, great women's ministry leaders, great church planters. Lydia was, you can be too. Jesus delivers those held captive by the enemy. I need to really speed up. As the kingdom takes new territory. In Acts 16, 16 to 18, we see Jesus delivering those who are held captive by the enemy. As the kingdom takes new territory. Remember, the kingdom has now jumped into Europe. They're taking, taking on new places. And we read this, as we were going to the place of prayer. Now this is, we don't know the time frame between verse 15 and 16. Lydia prevails on us. They stay at Lydia's house. Don't know how much time passes. However much time it is, they were going now to... The place of prayer. So they've located a synagogue. And they were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out of her that very hour. Jesus, the one who calls the stars by name and rules all things well, is also in the business of delivering those held captive by the enemy as the kingdom takes new territory. Demonization is real. Um, the Bible never uses the language of possession. It uses a word that transliterated into English is demonizing, harassment. It's real. And the team encounters a demon who has oppressed a girl who's a slave. So she's a slave owned by people. And the demon has harassed her and is harassing her in such a manner that she can tell fortunes. And the owners are making money at her expense. But we see in verse 17 that even the demons... Can only function so much in the presence of the kingdom, because what are they doing? They're crying out the truth. You ever notice what the demons did when Jesus came? You're the Most High, the Son, Living God, you're going to send me to that place before it's time? And Jesus, be quiet. Okay. They obey, I mean, you read the Gospels, right? All over the Gospels. Jesus confronted them, they had to obey Him. They knew the truth, known the truth from the moment they were created. And they can't help but be overwhelmed by the kingdom. And they are screaming out the truth about who these guys are and what the kingdom is. But don't you notice in verse 18 too, this constant truth telling by the demon is getting annoying. Because I can only imagine, I got the text doesn't tell us, doesn't tell us. I'm trusting that my imagination is working a little bit here. That this little slave girl is probably not speaking in her nice little girl voice. I mean, if she is known to have a fortune-telling thing going on, and she tells fortunes, and they make money, chances are this isn't a pretty sight. I mean, you can only imagine. This isn't pretty. And so she's following their ministry, screaming out, Hey! These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. In whatever way that looks, not pretty. And not only is it probably getting annoying, as we find here in verse 18, Paul is greatly annoyed. But it's probably turning people off. And people are falling. Mm, nah, this is really weird. And so what does Paul do? Paul recognizes, remembers Jesus' teaching in Matthew 10, 1, Matthew 28, 18, Mark 6, 7, Luke 9, 1. About how we are to deal with demons. And he applies it. The demon obeys and leaves her and they set her free. What do we do with this? Number one, church, you better believe spiritual warfare is real. And you better expect confrontation. We live in a place where naturalism has ruled so long that our first response is skepticism to anything non physical or biological. The Bible knows no such worldview. The Bible tells us early on God created the hosts of heavens, the hosts of the heavens. And early on at the fall, the chief of them was in the tree having a conversation with our mama. And all creation broke because of that conversation. And so we better believe that spiritual warfare is real. And as we take enemy-held territory, that we are going to be confronted with it. You say, well, geez, how am I to recognize that? I'm glad you asked the question. Because we have to learn to recognize spiritual warfare in context. I'm going to give you some passages to help you out. John eight forty four. Jesus said, Satan is... The father of lies. And when he lies, he speaks his native language. It's the atmosphere charged by lies, whether explicit or implicit. You daily need to check your thinking on whether or not you are believing lies. You know what I'm saying? See, how do I know it's a lie? Run it through this filter. Right? Right? Am I believing lies? Because if Satan is a liar and the father lies, and he speaks lies, then am I believing lies? You know where he likes to lie? He likes to lie about your identity. Personally. Then he likes to lie community. I mean, you see the way they looked at me? I think they got a problem with me. I ain't going to talk to them no more. I ain't going to look their way. I mean, you know the dumb stuff we do? And we got to stop and think... I don't, Did that really come out of me? Is that Holy Spirit? Is that the way the Holy Spirit works? No. No, no, no. He doesn't work in division. He doesn't work in lies. Right? He operates in truth. He reminds us of everything Jesus taught us. So if it's not coming from Jesus' mouth, the Scriptures, and it's working toward unity, it's from Satan. Right? Does that make sense? To learn to recognize the spiritual warfare. just can I can I have a little liberty for a moment? Yeah, I think in, in in the context of Scripture, they live in a very supernatural worldview where we see overt demonic stuff. And you got to think: if Satan's a liar and the father of lies, why would he just overtly identify himself? Right? Hey, Christian, I'm Satan, and these are my minions. I want to deceive you. Oh no, I'm good. Right? Because we're not that dumb. I mean, we are crazy. But we're not that dumb. No, I don't, I'm not into Satan, so I'm pretty good. You stay over there. No, he's a liar and the father of lies. So why would he do that? He's not. In a naturalistic context, what might he do? He might come at you and your thinking in flawed reason and logic. Because if he just shows up, Satan, here I am, you're like, negative, I'm out. But if he comes as a reasoned out thought, according to the flesh, and you can't discern it, you're taken captive. Right? Colossians 2.8. Paul tells them how to identify that. If you don't know what that says, go read it. He also seeks to outwit us. Right? Second Corinthians two eleven. Satan's a schemer. He seeks to outwit. He tries to stay one step. I mean, that's what the text says. Paul is telling them in the context of forgiving a repentant person and not contributing to their excessive grief. And the reason is, is because we don't want to be outwitted by Satan. So if you have forgiven them and they've repented, I forgive them too. Let them go. Release them. I don't want them to be weighed down by excessive grief. Lest we be outwitted by Satan. So Satan working in a failure to forgive on the part of people in the church is Satan outwitting us. Did you catch that? Right? So recognize spiritual warfare. Satan coming disguised as an angel of light. 2 Corinthians 11, 14. Right? Paul says that these false teachers... He says, why are they... Dressed up as apostles because Satan comes disguised as an angel of light. So learn to recognize spiritual warfare. Paul recognized it, dealt with it. Then you've got to learn to lean on people who are spiritually gifted to discern such things. And then you have to take authority over the demonic. Recognize it, confront it, command it, stay alert. Okay? I know that probably needs more time. could be a sermon in and of itself. Verse 19 to 24, when persecution happens, know that Jesus is still leading. What's going to be the reward for good ministry? Pat on the back. Good job. We're going to give ministry awards this week, Paul, Silas. Great week of work. No. Because you see, every time money's involved, somebody's hacked off. Because what just happened is the little slave girl's not bringing profit in anymore. And so what do they do? They drag them in there and falsely accuse them. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them in the marketplace before the rulers. And when they brought them into the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews. So they throw the ethnic card and they're disturbing our city lying and they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as romans to accept or practice false accusation and the crowd joined in attacking them mob and the magistrates tore garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods physical persecution and when they had inflicted many blows execution of physical Punishment, they threw them into prison, continuing the physical punishment, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received his orders, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Boy, when persecution happens, we got to know, and I wrote this on purpose, Jesus is still leading. you got to keep in mind, it's not like Jesus left them at this moment. Don't be duped into thinking, if hard things are coming, Jesus has abandoned you. No, 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 no. As a matter of fact, when hard things come, you will know his fellowship. Paul wrote that, that we might know him in the power of his resurrection and in the fellowship of his suffering. We are promised in the middle of hardships, Jesus' fellowship. So, keep in mind, Jesus hasn't abandoned them. Satan's not going to go quietly. His human minions have taken advantage of this young little girl's demonization and they've lost their income and all hell has broken loose. Because they bring all kinds of false accusations and beating and they throw them in prison. What are we supposed to do with this passage of Scripture? Ignore it? Pretend like it's not there? No. Expect the enemy to hit back and expect him to do it with unjust circumstances and false accusations. Listen, if things aren't going good and you're trying to serve the kingdom, stay the course. Stay the course, right? Make sense? This is different from Jesus closing doors of ministry. This is, ministry's happening. It's just hard. Don't quit. Expect the enemy to hit back. Unjust circumstances, false accusations. Listen, if you're going to be involved in any type of ministry, engage in your domain, somebody's going to lie about you. And if lying about you shuts you down, then you probably shouldn't have followed Jesus. Jesus said, they did this to me, they're going to do this to you. But I want you to take heart. Take heart. Take Job to heart. Because God can allow bad things through evil people and still make those bad things done by evil people work for your good and His glory. We're about to see how He does that here in jail. William Cowper said, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. John Piper in this marvelous four poems called The Misery of Job and the Mercy of God ends the first poem in this way. (laughs) He is not poor, nor much enticed, who loses everything but Christ. It won't be long before the rod Becomes the tender kiss of God. And C.S. Lewis wrote in the problem of pain. Pain insists on being attended to. God whispers in our pleasures. Speaks in our conscience. But shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Well, how in the world Jesus used this imprisonment? What we see in verse 25 to 40. Jesus uses imprisonment to grow the church. And set the record straight. He does justice. We're running out of time, so I want to hit this real quickly. Paul and Silas about midnight are praying, and what are they doing? Singing hymns to God. Now, you remember, they've been beaten. They're not only just in prison falsely, they have been beaten, so their backs are probably bloodied. They've been put, probably not in a sanitary prison, right? Didn't have concrete, cinder block, air condition, heated walls and rooms, no toilet facilities, Right? They've been beaten, put in the stocks. And what are they doing? They're praying and singing. Try that on next time things don't go well. Pray and worship. So they respond to this injustice and false imprisonment through a prayer meeting and a hymn sing. But we notice in verse 26... God is able to deliver his people from the circumstance they find themselves in because he sends an earthquake. And the understanding of the text is this isn't a random earthquake because remember, God's the one who knows the stars and calls them out by name. He's the one who determines when the crust quakes and when it doesn't. And so he sends an earthquake and opens the prison doors. Notice Paul and Silas don't take the opportunity to escape, they keep their integrity intact. And obey the authorities. That was strong. I'm out. Bond's off. Door's open. I'm gone, baby. Try to find me. Right? I'm out. It's dark. Midnight. You can't see me. Ha ha. Ha ha ha. No. They stay. They keep their integrity intact. They trust God. The jailer comes in. And I absolutely adore this situation their integrity and their obedience to god leads to this awesome question because you got to keep in mind they've been praying and singing chances are paul has dropped the gospel several times through this hymn sing and this prayer meeting you know he's prayed the gospel and i'm sure that jailer's going god almighty i wish they'd quit He's probably reciting it. Oh, I'm hearing it. And what does he do? He's obviously heard enough gospel that he comes in and he asks this question, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He heard enough gospel in their singing and in their praying that he's asking how to get saved. Isn't that awesome? And then God sets the record straight using the Roman law and the Roman Empire to defend his ambassadors. And then they get one last meeting with the church before they're off to the next assignment. What do we do with this? Well, Don't dismiss out of hand difficult circumstances as worship and ministry opportunities. Remember, that's different from Paul being prevented by Jesus to start a ministry, right? But when Jesus opened the doors to get into Macedonia and Philippi, ministry's going. Now ministry's moving forward, but it's hard. Don't dismiss difficult circumstances as worship and ministry opportunities. Worship Him in public. Praise Him in public. Give praise to Him specifically. Don't just use God language. Use Jesus' language publicly to make Jesus big. Keep in mind, we don't have to break laws or escape to the shadows to have effective ministry. In fact, working in the light rather than undercover puts the gospel in the public square where it belongs. Expect God to save the hardest of the hard, the jailer. (laughs) Because you notice the text, not only he saves the jailer because he pulls another Lydia situation. The jailer, what's the first thing that happens? He gets saved and what does he do? He turns into a fellowshipper. Come to my house, I'll wash your wounds. I know it's midnight. I'll wake my wife up and we'll get you some food and we'll take care of you. right? He gets saved and the next thing you do, he's hosting a small group at his house. I'm, I'm serious, that's what happens. Come to my house. I'll take care of you. Why? Because he's a new creature. He met Jesus. He didn't know these two crazy beating fools singing and praying all night were going to be the means by which his life shifted. You imagine that? Hey baby, wake up. I got these two prisoners. And they need some bandages. They need some food. Wake up. You are crazy. And he's like, No, no, no. You gotta hear. Drops the gospel, and what happens? The whole household believes. Isn't that awesome. So don't have to break laws or escape into the shadows to find effective ministry. Jesus can take the public square, he can save the hearts to the hard. Trust God to work out our circumstances and situations and submit to authority. Pray, worship, and serve. Acts 16, eleven to forty. So three of us, because He is the God of the universe who calls the stars out by name, runs the Great Commission well, plants churches, we just realize it, I want to invite you to worship Him. I want to invite you to make much of Him. Psalm 100 says it like this, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Right? Now, I'm not going to preach, but like maybe 20 seconds on this. When they came in the old, I mean, this whole language of coming into His presence, they didn't come into the temple without a sacrifice. Why? Because that's how you come in. What's the sacrifice with which you enter the presence of the Lord? Now you don't have to bring the blood of bulls and goats. Hebrews has taught us well. Jesus did that once for all, so He's purchased the way for us to come in. But we don't come in empty-handed. We come in giving thanks. We come in praising Him. And so, dare you not stand here this morning? With mouths closed. He bought your way in. So when you stand. Open the mouths. And give him praise. Because he's worthy. And Dare not bring some cheap excuse. Not my style. Because that's not going to fly. When you stand before him at the end of the age. Well Jesus wasn't my flavor. I mean that didn't sound dumb. That even sounds dumb. Don't come with that one. Right? Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us. We are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. You believe that? The text taught us that this morning, so therefore come and worship him. Father, in the- this morning we want to honor your name and we pray now that as we come to enter your gates with thanksgiving and your courts with praise that you would be glorified that um, you would be honored that your name would be lifted high holy spirit we trust you to take your word and make it effective down in the hearts of every individual in this room so now we pray that As we prepare to stand and open our mouths in praise and thanksgiving, that Jesus, you would sit enthroned, Holy Spirit, in praises of your people. Pray that you would have freedom to move powerfully in every soul. Maybe some here need to have their hearts opened to receive the gospel. Maybe some need to have their hearts um, freshly renewed to enjoy you and delight in you. Maybe some came in weighed down by external circumstances and they don't have a hymn or a prayer in their heart. Please put one there. Give us perspective. Help us to think with perspective. None of us are sitting in the stocks in prison. So give us a little perspective. Make our hearts thankful. and Bring us this morning to make much of you. Mobilize your people. Send people to the harvest. For the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few.